Hebrews chapter 1. I was um, accused this week. It wasn't a it wasn't a bad accusation. Really, it came from somebody that I love. But I was accused. I I was accused of being too thorough in my teaching of the book of Hebrews. Because we're not going to leave the second verse today. A few more weeks in the second verse still yet. And so this person whom I love, they're very close to me. They accuse me, man, you're so thorough. I mean, you're just six weeks, two verses, what? And, I, you know, I, I thought about how I might respond to that person at the moment. And I said this. came to mind that the average Christian, not you guys, you guys are above average. <laughs> Other Christians. The average Christian is never going to read a book on theology for themselves. Average Christian doesn't do that. The average Christian is never going to read a book on apologetics, defending the faith. Average Christian just doesn't do that. Average Christian actually isn't really necessarily going to study the doctrines of the Bible for themselves. They're not going to do an in-depth, hands-on, digging-in study for themselves. Most Christians just, you know, they don't do that. So, if they're not going to read theology books for themselves necessarily, and they're not going to read apologetics books necessarily, and they're not going to uh, discern the doctrines of the Bible for themselves necessarily, if the pulpits in America fail to thoughtfully and thoroughly instruct the church with regards to theology and defending the faith, where is your average Christian going to get their theology? They're going to get it from the secular schools and the TV. And that's no place to get your theology, men and women. And I think that the pulpits of America do the church in America disservice when they pander to people's desire... To have short little sermons. Yeah, praise the Lord. Make it brief, pastor, is a mantra that so many pastors hear that I hear and that they succumb to. But I have a burden that burns in my bones to teach the church the Word of God. And so we're going to just continue to be thorough. And I'm going to trust that you guys are adults. And if you could watch Lord of the Rings for three hours, you can study the Word of God for an hour with me. Amen? Amen. Having said that, let's read what we've covered thus far. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, In these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now that last phrase, through whom also he made the world, has been our subject of study last week, this week, and in the weeks to come. And last week we dealt with the creation evolution controversy. That conversation that is unfolding within the church and without the church. That conversation that's been going on for a long time. That conversation that this year in the presidential campaign has entered into the public arena in a way that it maybe never has before. Extremely relevant. 
And so we sought to educate ourselves a little bit on the facts concerning evolution and creation and how they weigh out against one another. And I did something I've never done before last week. Showed a video. I've never done that when I'm here. Showed a video because I don't have authority when it comes to science. When I'm teaching the Word of God, because I'm called by God, I have a degree of authority by the person of the Holy Spirit. Not so for science. So we showed a video. And in my estimation, it was convincing. In my estimation, it was wonderful. Were you guys blessed by that video? Was that worthwhile to you? Was that okay for you to do on a Sunday? The timing of the Lord is so good. I got several emails and uh, phone calls from from students and uh, parents this week because Carpinteria High had just been teaching evolution the whole week prior. And the students at Carpenter High had just been tested on Friday on evolution and their knowledge thereof. And then they came to church on Sunday and got some tools to go back on Monday. <laughs> Lord's so good. And then, check this out. I got this email from this young lady who goes to our church. And uh, look, I'm just going to read the email to you because it's, it's awesome. She goes to Santa Barbara City College. It says, Dear Reality Staff, God is so, she put, at, oh, a hundred times, so Awesome. Here's what happened this week. On Sunday at Reality, I watched the video about the scientific evidence for creation. It was very informative, and I left in awe and much appreciative of God's intricate handiwork. Monday morning comes along, and guess what hour-long video I'm watching in my sociology class? Evolution. Bummer, huh? I've heard it all before. Primates are ancestors, Big Bang, humans evolving from bacteria through millions of years, etc., At the end of class, during discussion, my teacher posed a question to the class asking who believes in the creation view. I raised my hand. This is a for real Christian here. She asked me what I had to say. So I asked her if instead I could bring a creation video for the class to watch on what I believe is true. And guess what? She said yes. She allowed me to show a section of the video. I was jumping up for joy in my heart, extremely excited for the opportunity God had given. I mean, can you believe it? This is a secular public school, Santa Barbara City College, that teaches a theory of evolution as if it were a fact. And she says, during the last class of the semester, students would have the chance to watch the other side of the creation evolution story. Last class of the year, semester. Now keep in mind, my professor is a proponent of the theory of evolution and throughout the semester had subtly mocked Christian thinking. God can do remarkable things, even through those who don't know him yet. Much prayer was needed and I didn't know the title of the video or where to acquire it. Thankfully, the staff at Reality gave me the name of the video and the URL address where it could be accessed. The day before class, I had asked many brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for the teacher and the students that their hearts and minds may be open to the truth and ultimately that God be glorified. When the day came, I also came prepared. With various research and Bible passages in hand, I introduced the video with a short message. I mean, check this chick out, right? She's given a sermon in sociology class. A section of the video was shown about 15 minutes worth. After the clip, I concluded and then asked for any comments from my 80 classmates. That's bold. There was a brief moment of silence. 
followed by three raised hands. All questions had to do with wanting to know the name of the video and where they could watch the rest of it. I was surprised that there were no voice ridicules, opposing remarks, nor arguments against creation. After my professor dismissed the class, I came up to her and once again thanked her for allowing the contrasting side to be heard, casually adding, this chick is nuts, (laughs) casually adding that I ordered her a copy so that she could finish watching the video on her own. The video will arrive in her mail during finals week. (laughs) Hey, that's a real Christian right there. That's what you're supposed to do. You hear the word of God on Sunday, you put it into action on Monday. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, what we saw from that video last week is that Darwinist macroevolution is a severely scientifically flawed theory. Don't you agree? Darwinist scientific, uh, the, the Darwinist theory of macroevolution is a seriously scientifically flawed theory. But here's the deal. In the secular realm, people are bullied into accepting it. People are coerced into it. People are intimidated. You could tell she was, she was expecting to be attacked when she shared the creation perspective. And people who dissent from that view of macroevolution according to Darwin's series, so on and so forth, are ridiculed and ostracized in a public forum. But here's what we believe, and here's what we found out last week. According to the observable evidence, there seems to be more reason to believe intelligent design and creation than Darwinist evolution. And I would suggest to you that it takes more faith to believe in things evolving from one species to another than it does that God simply made them as such. But the religion behind evolution, the religion behind evolution, because it is a religiously held and defended belief, the religion behind evolution is that I am my own. I will be accountable to no God. You see, the logical conclusion of Darwinist evolution is that there is no God. As long as evolution might be true, people might not be accountable to the God of the universe. That's why it's so vehemently fought for. But what is interesting to me is what some Christians have done with the theory of evolution. Some Christians assert that macroevolution and creation are both true. And that God used the process of evolution to form the various species that we see in the world today. This viewpoint is called theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. It advocates a belief in God, therefore it's theistic. It advocates a belief in God from the Greek theos. But it also advocates a belief in evolution. It endeavors to merge, to mate, to dovetail the two together. Here's a working definition of theistic evolution. The theistic evolutionist holds a position somewhat between that of absolute evolutionist and the creationist. He believes that God created the materials of our universe and then guided and superintended the process by which all life has evolved from the very simplest one-celled form on up to the sophisticated forms we know today. Evolution was God's method of bringing about the present development, though originally the materials were created by God. 
That is the basic perspective of theistic evolutionism. Now, who believes this? You might be surprised to find out some very big names within Christianity. Some professors at Christian colleges. For example, Richard G. Calling is a professor at Olivet Nazarene University. He's written some big books on how the Lord used evolution. Daryl R. Falk is a professor at Point Loma. Nazarene University. Carl Gib- uh, Giberson of Eastern Nazarene. A theology professor from a certain Christian college here in the Santa Barbara area is an evolutionist. Evolution creation. Neo-Darwinist creationist, he calls himself. B.B. Warfield, who was a principal of Princeton Seminary, was a theistic evolutionist. C.S. Lewis, theistic evolutionist. The Roman Catholic Church has announced that their official position is that God used the processes of macroevolution. And Billy Graham has expressed openness to the viewpoint. Many mainline Protestant Christians subscribe to theistic evolution. So much so that last year, 2006, on February 12th, The church at large on the 197th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birthday proclaimed that Sunday to be Evolution Sunday. February 12, 2006 was Evolution Sunday commemorating, celebrating Charles Darwin's birthday. And on that Sunday, many churches all around the world elected to teach messages and sermons and classes on the fact that followers of Christ don't have to choose between biblical stories of creation and evolution. Yet the two should be merged together. That they were compatible. This was taught at Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Episcopalian churches, Presbyterian churches, Unitarian churches, Congregationalist churches, United Church of Christ, Baptist churches, and community churches. Now I was very aware of this day. I received very many emails urging me, Pastor, speak today on the compatibility of evolution with what the Bible teaches about creation. Many emails. People, I don't know who the people were, urging me to speak on the topic. I was aware of the day. I elected that day at this church to speak on the moral responsibility of prayer. We were two parts into a 12-part series on prayer. I wasn't about to move our attention away from prayer to celebrate Charles Darwin's birthday in church. I'm happy to announce that no reality churches observed Evolution Sunday. Why? Because we don't believe in the theory of evolution. Nor do we subscribe to theistic evolution. If we did, why would we? What would be necessary to convince us as Christians to hold the position of a theistic evolutionist? Well, we would have to see overwhelming scientific merit and Darwinism in the theory of macroevolution. We would have to see overwhelming scientific merits in that theory. Scientific merit that was so overwhelming that it forced us to re-examine how we interpret the scriptures. Now, I don't believe that we've ever been presented with overwhelming evidence for the validity of the theory of evolution. Microevolution, of course, nobody challenges that, of course. Adaptation within species, we're not talking about that. But macroevolution, species to species, I do not believe that we've been given overwhelming evidence that forces us to adopt that view. 
I just don't see that. You know who else didn't see the evidence for it? Charles Darwin. Here's a couple quotes from Charlie. Number one, he says, I am quite conscious that my speculations run beyond the bounds of true science. It is a mere rag of a hypothesis with as many flaws and holes as it has sound parts. Here's another quote from Charles Darwin. To suppose that the eye, he's talking about the eye, to suppose that the eye with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances and for emitting different amounts of light and for correcting of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I confess, absurd in the highest. Here's one more. He said toward the end of his life, not one change of species is on record. We cannot prove that a single species has been changed. So I don't see that we've been presented with overwhelming merit with regards to the theory to force us to adopt it as Christians. Nor apparently did Charles Darwin see much merit in the theory. Now, if we were going to subscribe to theistic evolution, there must be at least this, an overwhelming amount of evidence for macroevolution, as we said, Or, if that was lacking, or we then as Christians would have to see clearly portrayed in the scriptures evidence that God used the process of evolution. Or we were just so convinced of the evidential truth of the theory of evolution that it causes us to correct our interpretation of scripture altogether. For example, Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life and man became a living being. We would have to completely change the way that we view that. We would have to outright reject it as literal or as even close to literal. We'd have to say it had nothing to do with dust. It had to do entirely with slow adaptation over time. Different changes over time, we'd have to completely re-examine the way that we interpret serious amounts of Scripture. Now, let me say this. There has been times where scientific understanding has informed our interpretation of Scripture. For example, the Bible says that the sun rises and the sun sets. You know that, right? Ecclesiastes 1, 5, other places. It's the language of the Bible. The rising of the sun and the setting of the sun. Now, In some time past, people that used to read the Bible assumed that because of that, the earth was the center of the universe. They assumed then that the sun and the other planets rotated around the earth and the earth was the center of the universe. That was the commonly held view according to how they read scripture. But then the Italian astronomer Galileo comes comes along toward the end of the 1500s and in his observations he showed that the earth was not the center but rather the earth and other planets rotated around the sun. He showed that. He demonstrated that. How did the church respond? Well, he received great criticism and the dominant church at the time, the Roman Catholic Church, condemned all of his writings and eventually put him under house arrest. He spent the end of his life arrested for that view. Now, that was a mistake. Both the people's understanding of Scripture at the time, their interpretation thereof, and their response when presented with the evidence that their interpretation was wrong. 
The Bible does not teach that the sun revolves around the earth. Scripture says nothing about whether the sun or the earth is the center of the universe. That's not a question that Scripture addresses. What we have is descriptions of the sun from the perspective of the human observer. And from that perspective, the the Bible gives an accurate description. We use that same grammar all day long. We say the sun is setting. This is how we describe it. That's how we communicate. Or the sun is rising. God, in endeavoring to communicate to people, simply communicated it in his word in a way that people would understand because he used people to communicate his word. He wasn't mistaken about that. It's just communicated from the perspective of the human observer. But my point is this. It took a scientific observation to make people look again at Scripture to see if it really taught what they thought it taught. And they realized that they were incorrect in their interpretation and eventually that was corrected. That's the way things ought to go. And some at this juncture, some, devil's advocate here, would say, that's correct, quote, Because the Bible is not a book about science. We should heed the Bible on issues of faith and how to get to heaven. But when it comes to scientific assertions about the heavens or about the earth, we don't need to heed it. Now, that statement is partly true. The Bible is not meant to be a book about science. But that does not mean that it should be then expected to be in error when it speaks about scientific issues. The goal of the Bible is not to teach science, but when the Bible makes a scientific assertion, we expect it to be without error because it's the Word of God. God understands science. Now, the other side of that is this. There have been times when science was in conflict with the Bible and science discovered through further investigation and observation that the Bible was correct all along. For example, the Bible always said that the stars were innumerable. Jeremiah 33, 22 and other places that the stars were innumerable. But, but Johannes Kepler, who was the big astronomer of the time, the end of the 1500s, beginning of the 1600s, numbered the stars at over slightly a thousand. That was the widely accepted scientific view is that there's just over a thousand stars. But then as science advanced and progressed and discovered more, science began to say, oh, the stars are innumerable. The Bible always said that. Right? It's the same with a beginning. The Bible always said that matter had a finite beginning. And science is now saying, oh yeah, we're, we're sure now that matter had a finite beginning. So sometimes science has corrected our interpretation of the scriptures and we need to be humble to admit when we're wrong as a church, not lock people up for it. And then other times the Bible has been correct and science needs to be humble to realize that, wow, the, the Bible actually had it all along. Now, there existed this moment, conflicts between the Bible and science. So one of two things is happening. Either science is not complete in its understanding of an issue, or our interpretation of certain biblical texts is incorrect. And what is at stake in this conflict between science and the Bible is not the trustworthiness or infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture. That's not what is at stake. What is at stake is some of our long-held interpretations of Scripture, of certain texts. Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology on commenting says this, The lesson of Galileo 
who was forced to recant his teachings and who had to live under house arrest the last few years of his life should remind us that careful observation of the natural world can cause us to go back to scripture and re-examine whether scripture actually teaches what we think it teaches. Sometimes on closer examination of the text, we may find that our previous interpretations were incorrect. Now, the question before us then is this. Has evolution, Darwinist macroevolution, been so clearly demonstrated that we must now re-examine our interpretation of what the Bible teaches concerning creation? No. It has not been so demonstrated. It is not so clear cut that we must accept it and therefore re-examine how we approach the scriptures. Let me shed some more light on this conflict. There is something a man named, um, what was his name? Francis Schaeffer. Something a man named Francis Schaeffer wrote about which he called no final conflict. What he proposed was this. When all the facts are rightly understood, there will ultimately be no final conflict between scripture and natural science. When everything is understood, when we finally get everything right about science and everything right about scripture, there's not going to be a conflict in the end. Now, this is a helpful assertion because it allows us, us to admit that our understanding of natural science is not complete or perfect and that our understanding of scripture is not complete or perfect. To assert otherwise is, is ridiculous because science has made some huge blunders throughout history and the church has made some giant blunders throughout history. So for anybody to assert that we have full understanding and might not be wrong on anything, is, it just doesn't make any sense. We've been wrong in the past. We've got to be open to that. Now, what this then means, no, kind of fa- no final conflict, is that we can approach both scientific and biblical study with confidence, with confidence, both of them, science and the Bible, with confidence, that when all the facts are correctly understood, and when we have understood scripture rightly, our findings will never be in conflict with each other. There will be no final conflict. The reason being is because God, who speaks in scripture, knows all the facts and has not spoken in a way that would contradict any true fact in the universe. God understands science. What we, though, want to avoid in this dialogue, in these debates, in this ongoing discussion, in this battle, what we want to avoid is unnecessary and premature surrender to scientific theories such as evolution, which is precisely, in my estimation, what the theistic evolutionist has done. They have surrendered to the precepts of evolution too soon. They surrendered to the assertions, to the claims, to the evidence for macroevolution too soon. They've rolled over unnecessarily. That's exactly what Christianity as a whole did after Charles Darwin released his book, The Origin of Species, in 1859. In the late 1800s, Darwin's theory became incredibly popular. It became generally accepted. And what Christianity did was wave the white flag of surrender. Instead of engaging 
Instead of fighting, instead of intelligently dialoguing, they just raised up the white flag of surrender, rolled over prematurely and incorrectly. And I'll tell you what, society has suffered the consequences. Because evolution has a moral outcome. The logical completion of evolution is that there is no God. That has tremendous moral ramifications for our world. And when the church, who is called to be salt and light, chose to roll over at the end of the 1800s, we did an incredible disservice to the world as a whole. And the world has suffered the results of the church's inability, unwillingness to engage in the conversation in a meaningful, humble, intelligent manner. We, at this juncture in history, must avoid acquiescing, we must avoid surrendering unnecessarily or prematurely. Science has, at points in the fact, at points in the past, corrected our interpretation. It may do so again in the future. But this is not necessary for us to do with Darwinist evolution. Because the scientific evidence for Darwinist macroevolution does not force one to accept it, there's absolutely no reason for a Christian to adopt it then unless it could be clearly seen in Scripture. But what creation evolutionists do is they import evolution into the Bible. There's not enough evidence to, to even fathom that. So, so the only way then that we could entertain that we might hold that position is not based on the merits of evolution. We would have to then see somewhere in Scripture that God chose to use evolution. The clear teaching of Scripture is that there is purposefulness in God's work of creation. There is purposefulness, intentionality in God's work of creation. And that is incompatible, incompatible with the randomness demanded by the evolution theory. God's purposefulness is incompatible with the randomness that is demanded by the theory of evolution. Turn to Genesis 1, please. Genesis chapter 1. What we realize as we read through Genesis 1 and 2 and through the rest of the Bible is what I just said. That God seems to be in what He does. Wouldn't you agree? God seems to be intentional and purposeful. Just seems to be that way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's intention there. There's purpose there. Look at verse 24 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let there, or let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. We see here that God had a purpose and that God was intentional. The Bible pictures God doing things in such a way. Now, this is the opposite. God's intentionality. His purposeful action in creation. This is the opposite of allowing mutations to proceed entirely randomly with no purpose for the millions of mutations that would have come about before a new species could emerge with a theory of evolution. God's purposefulness and intentionality is opposite of the randomness that is required for the mutations to take place. 
And this is the fundamental difference between a biblical view of creation and theistic evolution. In evolutionary schemes, everything, all change and development is based on randomness. Everything is based on randomness. Do the scriptures portray a God who is random? Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Jesus is the one who exegetes the Godhead for us, according to John 1. He's the explanation, the illumination, the revelation of God. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that not a single bird fell from its nest unless the Father was aware of it. And then Jesus went on to say this in Matthew chapter 10, that every hair upon your head is numbered by the Father. No matter how sloppy your hairdo might be, no matter how random your hair is, God is so purposeful and so intentional that he's numbered every single one of them. There's nothing left to chance in the heart of God. He's numbered every single one of them. This scripture denotes purpose, care, and involvement in creation by God. Hebrews 1.3, which we might get to someday, <laughs> says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Not that he lets things go and that there's random mutations and let's just see how it happens. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Not that he lets them go and let's see, he upholds. Those two don't go together. Colossians 1 verse 17 says, In Christ all things hold together. He's not letting it go to see what might happen. He's holding it all together. I'll tell you what, also theologically speaking, the idea of randomness which is required for Darwinist evolution requires. Randomness removes relational intimacy. You see, I believe from Scripture that we have a God who wants to be intimate with you and I. But the idea of randomness removes relational intimacy because we, we would have to begin to think then if God uses the processes of evolution, we would have to begin to think how many of us are just random. And that has some horrible moral implications. How many of us are just random? In fact, the logical conclusion, we'd have to start to think which one of us is a mistake. Because evolution requires millions of mistakes before it gets it right. Which one of us is a mistake? Not me. Well, some of you. <laughs> and then we'd also have to, to entertain this thought. If God uses evolution, then the process is still ongoing. We could never be so arrogant as to think that we are the climax of evolution. We're just a step above the monkeys on the way to something else. We're not special or unique. We're not the climax of evolution. We're just part of the chain and it's ongoing. You see... We've got to get our self-perspective from the Word of God. Now, the Word of God tells you and I that we are dirty, rotten, filthy sinners, but that we are incredibly loved by Him and precious to Him. Now, that's the right view of self, but that's contrary to the idea of randomness. We, we would have to ask ourselves, those of us who are in ministry, how do you feel about serving a random God? Makes prayer stupid. 
God, what do you think about thus and so? I don't know, man. Run up the flagpole. See how she goes. Whatever. Try it out. How would it feel to serve a random God? No, we've got a God who's got a plan. He's got a purpose. We would have to ask ourselves, would Jesus Christ bleed on the cross for the product of a random mutation? Does millions of failed attempts at the hands of random mutations paint a picture of a God of love who created man to be loved? No, it doesn't. It creates a picture of millions and millions of failures before something was right. And so at this juncture now, a theistic evolutionist, and there might be some among us, that's cool, a theistic evolutionist would say, no, 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 wait a minute, man. Don't, don't start talking about would Jesus die for a random mutation. No, no, no. God intervened and God is purposeful in us. Oh. Wait, so theistic evolution believes that God intervened and had purpose? Yes, they believe that God intervened and had purpose at certain points. Now, I would say if God intervenes and is purposeful in creation, then why do you need evolution? You would say, well, he just intervened at a few points. Wait, if God is purposeful at all and intentional at all, why would we need evolution at all? Theologian Louis Burkhoff says it well. He says, theistic evolution is really a child of embarrassment, which calls God in at periodic intervals to help nature over the chasms that yawn at her feet. It is neither the biblical doctrine of creation nor a consistent theory of evolution. So, because of this immense statistical impossibility of evolution, theistic evolutionists must assert that God did intentionally intervene at certain junctures. Otherwise, they confess it really statistically couldn't have happened. So they would say generally that God intervened at these three junctures. Number one, in the creation of matter at the beginning. Number two, at the creation of the simplest life form. And then at the creation of man. God made matter, and then he he started life out. He made the simplest life form, one-celled organism. And they said, okay, you go. And he watches millions and billions of failures took place through, through mutational changes, so, or through, you know what I'm saying, as all these changes took place, and then at one point, and here's what some theistic evolutionists say, that at one point, as primates were evolving, they got pretty close to what God wanted, so it was at that juncture that God chose one of them, the most evolved one, and he breathed life into it, and it became Adam. Well, I don't know, that's... Some of our brothers and sisters hold that view. But you see, once this is allowed, then there is purpose and intelligent design in the process. We no longer need evolution at all because there's no longer random mutation because at points there was divine interaction. So why, if there's not enough scientific evidence for evolution and the scriptures don't seem to communicate that God used it, and that you admit readily that God would have had to have intervened or it never happened, why are you holding to evolution at all? Why are you importing that into our Bible? 
No secular evolutionist would accept such intervention by intelligent, purposeful creator. Once a Christian agrees to some active, purposeful design by God, then there's no longer any need for randomness at all. Thus, we may as well have God immediately creating each distinct creature without thousands of attempts that fail. And that's exactly what we see in the scriptures. Look in Genesis 1, verse 3. We see the scripture reveals that God's creative word brings immediate response. Here's a key point. God's creative word brings immediate response. Not response after long, 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 long times of uh, random mutations, but immediate response. Genesis 1, verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, the biblical doctrine is that God speaks creation into existence. And his word seems to have an immediate response. It can have any response he wants it to have. But as you just read the Bible, it seems that it had here in creation an immediate response. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God said it and it was immediately so. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them on the earth. And it was so. Immediate response to God's word. Verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. You see, the plain reading of scripture is that God's word had an immediate effect that he intended it to have. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. That's what the Bible says. That it was from the dust and that it was immediate. Psalm 33 says the same thing. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and their host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood forth. Immediate response to God's word. Now, the leading uh, paleoanthropologist in the world, his name is Richard Leakey, on a PBS special said this. If pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to unequivocally say that all we have is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolving. Now, see, church, we have to continue to press. Because this scientist said, if I was pressed, I would side with the evidence that seems to say that man came into being immediately. And furthermore, what we see is this. God says about creation that it was good and very good. Genesis 1.25 And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And 131 
And God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. Now, this is an important point because these statements seem inconsistent with the idea of God creating or directing or observing millions of random mutations, none of which were very good in the way that he intended. Because Darwin's theory of evolution requires millions and millions of failures. How do we have God observing all these failures and saying it is good and very good? None of them would have been the kinds of plants and animals that God wanted to have on earth. In fact, according to natural selection, which is required for the progress of evolution, what God would have created must have been not good because it had a long way to go. But God made it and said, it's good and it's very good. So when we take the straightforward biblical account, it's hard for us to accept theistic evolution. It's not easily imported into the Bible, this theory of evolution. Theistic evolution does not result from a normal reading of the Bible. It's what we would call a forced interpretation of the text. A forced interpretation of the text that does not accept the straightforward literal meaning. To hold the theistic evolution, we've got to read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as either myth or allegory, or poetry, or saga, or some other literary form. But we cannot read it as actual or historical if we're going to subscribe to theistic evolution. So we ask this question. I'm just about finished. Pay attention. We ask this question. How does Genesis 1 and 2 want to be read? It wants to be read as historical. Wayne Grudem says this about it. He says, The historical narrative in Genesis continues without a break into the obvious historical material about Abraham in Genesis 12, showing that the author intended the entire section to be historical and for us to view Adam and Eve as actual individuals. Now, the Bible definitely does use poetry, and it does use allegory and various literary forms, but it generally lets us know when it's doing so. There's nothing in Genesis that would indicate we seem to have a consistency right into what is very clearly the historical account of Abraham from the opening chapters of Genesis. Secondly, in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul affirms the existence of the one man, Adam, through whom sin came into the world. Now he goes on to base the necessity for the act of Jesus Christ upon the cross He bases the atonement on the fact that sin entered the world through one man. Now, if Genesis 1 and 2 are are mythological, if they're simply allegory, allegory, there's no historical truth to them, then we have the theologian Paul basing his arguments for atonement on a faulty premise. And he compares the new man, Jesus Christ, to the one man, Adam. If the one man, Adam, through whom sin entered the world is allegorical, then are we to believe that the new man, through whom the sins of the world were removed, is also allegorical? Paul accepted the existence, the literal historical existence of Adam, in the same way that he did the literal historical existence of Jesus, and connected the doctrine of our atonement to the actions of Adam. Thirdly, 
The whole New Testament understands Adam and Eve to be historical figures. You just can't find anything in the Bible that, that, that says that they want to be allegorical or that it's myth. There's nothing that, that would lead us in that direction. The Bible's pretty clear when it's using allegory or poetry or some other literary form. But there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest that for the opening chapters of Genesis. In fact, Adam and Eve are always understood to be historical figures. We see that in Luke 3.38, Acts 17.26, 1 Corinthians 11.8 and 9, 2 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Timothy 2.13-14, so on and so forth. And then here's really the clincher. In Matthew 19, it seems that Jesus took Genesis 1 and 2 to be literal historical accounts. Now I'm just going to always side with Jesus. That's my basic theology. I'm always going to go with Jesus. Jesus claimed that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. I'm going to roll with it. Jesus seemed to speak literally about Jonah. I'm going to hang with it. And Jesus seemed to speak literally and historically about Genesis 1 and 2. I'm going to go with Jesus. Now I know what people say. I know. I've been there. I've been in the classes. I know what they say. They say, well, Jesus was acquiescing to the cultural understanding. His audience thought that they were historical, literal accounts, and so he acquiesced and talked their language as though it was historical. Yeah, I'm not with you. I'm not with you on that. I think Jesus said exactly what he wanted to say for all time. He said, heaven and earth are going to pass away. Not my word. He's very careful about his words. Don Stewart says, the scriptures from the first page to the last treat the creation account in Genesis as having actually occurred. Nowhere is there a hint that it is myth or allegory. We should treat this account the same way the biblical writers did. And here's where we finish pretty much. Instead of the straightforward biblical account of God's creation, the theistic evolution view has to understand events to have occurred something like this. Okay? Theistic evolution, the Bible would read like this. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And after 387,492,871 attempts, God finally made a mouse that worked. You see, that's what's got to be asserted for each of the hundreds of thousands of different kinds of plants and animals on earth to come. Is that there were just millions and millions of failures and then God finally got something that worked. Let's finish with just the real right view of God and creation. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we see that you really can't accept the picture of God as disinterested, rarely intervening, random in his methodology. These words in Psalm 139 are so beautiful. This is God's view of creation and his interaction with you and I. Look how beautiful this is. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, 
Thou hast searched me and you know me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I get up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and in front and lay thy hand upon me. Ah, he didn't take it off and just let it roll. Lays his hand upon us. All things are held together by Christ Jesus. And lay thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. Look now, verse 13. Here's a biblical declaration. For you did form my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. I'm going to give thanks to you. I'm going to thank you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Not random mutations. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Every fiber of your being. Wonderful are thy works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame wasn't hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. That's the right-on view. That's how God interacts with creation. He is infinitely and intimately concerned with you in your life. There's not much randomality about it. If the scriptures do not reveal any processes that look like evolution, or a God who is random and seldom interested or in, in intervening, and scientific evidence does not demand that one accept the theory then I say to you that theistic evolution does not seem to be a valid theory for a Christian to hold. And that's my position. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's wonderful. Thank you for that truth that we are fearfully and wonderfully made beautiful you did all things well Lord you did all things well we ask Lord that if the fact of your desired intimacy with us has been lost on any of us that you'd help us today it's just so clear from scripture that because you're a God of love you made us you didn't need us but you did it And in that and in creation, in the order and the intricacy and the intentionality of it, your glory is revealed. Reveal more of your glory to us today, Lord. More of you. If we've missed the beauty of anything, your desired intimacy with us, Lord, correct us. We want to see you high and exalted. We want to be a people that praise you. We want you to be enthroned, Lord. Be enthroned and let us be humble before you. Prayer team is up here if you need help today. Communion is here to celebrate Jesus. 
Carpets are here if you want to kneel or get on your face. Let's worship this awesome God.